things. And I do think that obviously good policy is very, very important. And that's where you and I agree a lot that, you know, there's obviously some good policies that could be enacted. There's probably better conversations that could be had in this space. And that's also something else that I really do really want to see. You're listening to episode 281 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. As a research organization, we here at the Institute make it a habit to hear all sides of the debate. Along the way, we make connections with people who offer perspectives on policy that differ from ours. We consider these conversations critical as we analyze factors that help us create policy recommendations and resources for local communities. This week, Christopher talks with Will Reinhart from the American Action Forum. They got together at the recent Broadband Communities Economic Development Conference in Atlanta. In this conversation, you'll hear the two discuss a variety of topics. They talk about the area of telecommunications and economics and the forum's approach. You'll also hear that these different perspectives aren't as black and white as they first appear. Now here's Christopher with Will Reinhart from the American Action Forum. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, coming to you from Atlanta, sitting practically on a runway at the Atlanta airport, with Will Reinhart, the Director of Technology and Innovation Policy with the American Action Forum. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Thanks for, thanks for having me. We're at the Broadband Communities event here. We just did our second panel. We, it's just called the Blue Ribbon Panel and a general session kind of thing. And you and I are typically brought on as people of very opposing <laughs> yeah, points yeah, of view. Yeah, yeah. To kind of get the, the crowd riled up in the morning. And I, you know, as someone who has strong points of view, I think there's tremendous value in the audience hearing from multiple points of view. Yeah, yeah, I know, very much so. So what is the American Action Forum? So yeah, we're a think tank based in Washington, D.C. Um, you know, we do a little bit of everything. My boss is a former CBO director. Uh, we do a lot of economic analysis of various sorts. That's kind of where... I try to focus, and my focus obviously is in technology policy, so with that comes a lot in telecommunications and broadband deployment, and one of the other major areas that I really have kind of come to work a lot on are these you know, platform technologies, you know, Facebook and Google, which have been getting a lot of um, interesting critiques as of late. And The mob switches yeah, quickly. Very, very quickly. It only took about 18 months for this all to change over. As someone who's long been skeptical, yeah. I'm also leery of mobs. <laughs> so Yes, yeah. The platform area is another area I work a lot in, and also AI, and I've been doing some actual original research in AI and productivity numbers and and the sharing economy and kind of, you know, how work is changing as well. So it's uh, there's a lot of interesting work to be done, to be very honest, if you're in this kind of space between policy and, and technology. And I really do want more people to be looking at this because I think there's still a lot of very low-hanging fruit. Now, I think... Um, your work might be caric- caricatured as just being pro-industry, reflexively pro-cable, pro-telecom monopoly. And and I want to ask you, like, for, for people who make those sorts of accusations, do you feel that you are pro-cable in, in telephone monopoly? No, not at all. Wow. This is this is a this is a really uh, harsh setup. No, I, I well, think let me just. I mean, I don't I don't mean to say that you are. I'm no, saying no. that there are people who say that no, about yeah, you. Yeah. And in many ways, I think when I'm on offense, you're defending the industry. You appear to be, you know, yeah. re- defending them in ways that you may disagree with me and also disagree with them. But you're focused. The reporters are interested in how you disagree with me. So it, it, I want to yeah, be fair yeah, to yeah. that. Yeah, no, no. I guess the I think the the 
there's there's obviously a nuance and a depth to all the different positions and you know individuals may kind of pick out and really hone in on one thing or another thing that you said without really kind of understanding the nuance I guess part of it really comes down to me is just seeing and I think that you actually mentioned this to me that you know you're originally from Minnesota and so for you um, the ability of government to kind of come in and and solve a lot of very interesting problems like that's kind of the baseline compared to myself, I'm from Springfield, Illinois. And so I see a lot of these issues bubble up over and over again with with government-based solutions. So I'm, I guess I'm just much more skeptical of our ability to really kind of change and curtail markets. And I do think that obviously good policy is very, very important. And that's where you and I agree a lot that, you know, there's obviously some good policies that could be enacted. There's probably better conversations that could be had in this space. And that's also something else that I really do really want to see. I'm not, I mean, I'm not for one industry or another, I'm actually much more interested in innovation and ensuring that innovation occurs. And the 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 form that that take for me often often you know kind of aligns with this idea of permissionless innovation. That let let's see what's going to happen. Then when bad things do happen, then let's try to police it when they do happen. And so I, th- I think that just for me, there's just hesitation and skepticism in our ability to really um, change and and define and curtail these markets and. Also, I guess I'm a little bit more optimistic about the outcomes themselves. So when you talk about the the permissionless innovation, it's yeah. interesting. I think everyone says that they want that. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. No, very much so. And one of the things that I firmly believe is that um, if we had, rather than two major cable companies that are, you know, Charter and Comcast, mm-hmm. if we had 15 and there were even like regional monopolies, I feel like I would be more... Uh, likely to think that there could be permissionless innovation, even if they were very powerful, but they were less large. The scale of Comcast and Charter makes me think that the biggest threat to permissionless innovation, the ability to just come up with new things, is those two companies because they have such a, you you kind of have to deal with them if you want to be innovative in the broadband market today. I think the numbers game is an interesting question. This is something that seems to at least inform and implicitly inform a lot of the conversations that go that go on. And the the number of like, you know, 15. So if we had, for example, within each market, if we had 15 different players, there's often this problem on on the downside that a lot of economists will talk about, which is you can't have you you can't have elements of scope. You can't have uh, economics of scope that that practically speaking, when you're a very small player, your ability to use the investment, which is, you know, as you know, is a very, very kind of tall order to actually spread that across your consumer base is very, very difficult. So, uh I, you know, who knows what exactly the the right number is, and I guess that's also one of my skepticisms. I don't think that necessarily more competitors is a, is always going to be a better better situation. Right. I just I think I wasn't totally clear, um, and that's a it's a very good um, point for why it's unreasonable to expect that we'd have fifteen different choices in yeah. a market yeah. on on an infrastructure competition basis. The point I was I was trying to make was that if we had um, 15 cable companies, each of which was dominant in, mono- in a monopoly. So if Minnesota in the upper Midwest had cable company A and um, the East Coast had cable company B and there were still these kinds of almost monopolies, the, the mere fact that you would have different companies that were kind of looking over their shoulders at each other to me is a different dynamic. So it's not to say that any one person would be able to choose from 15 firms, mm-hmm. but that there's not just two major firms out there that are kind of calling the shots. Um, when we have so much collapsed where there's just two major cable companies in the United States at this point, mm-hmm. um, I worry that, that they can do things that 
even if there the whole country was divided, uh, you know, and, and there was non-overlapping territories, if there's a higher number of those entities, they're going to be checking each other, and there's going to be a different result than when you have just two firms. That's a, a bit of a different articulation than what what most people would say in this space, which is, you know, instead of having effectively one, you know, cable provider in a region, or you'll have one, you know, one DSL-based provider in a region, you know, oftentimes the conversation typically goes region by region. So it's like, you know, this market, whatever this market is, let's say, you know, in your example, it's it's Minnesota. Let's say it's the Twin Cities market. It has, you know, rather what is being added within the conversation is that, you know, well, within this market, we need X amount of players. And what I think you're saying is then that, wait a second, maybe instead you'd have the three or four providers that would be, for example, within the Twin Cities, and a different set of three or four providers would be in, within a different region. I, I still kind of go back to this problem, which is a pretty endemic problem, which is, again, scale and scope. We do know to a certain extent that companies, when they are able to buy at scale, they're actually able to provide these services cheaper for, for specific consumers. There is this range of providers that, that typically works really, really well for a region, which is effectively three or four now. It, it seems that only the major cities seem to really get that or you get, you know, for example, a um, some sort of, you know, independent fiber provider, a cable provider, and then effectively your, you know, your DSL based provider that has, you know, done some sort of overbuild or, or, or really developed out with fiber. And therefore you have effectively these three competitors. These obviously, as you're well aware, come from historical decisions on actually providing a very specific franchise service within each of the different cities. And so, you know, for a very long time, one, one of the ideas was, well, we need to provide some sort of competition for the broadcasters. And so we're going to give then the cable providers an outline within our region and that's where a lot of these original you know franchising agreements come from and kind of where the you know where the footprint originally comes from it comes from you know effectively the 50s and 60s we made these decisions about creating some sort of competition playing field and that's again that's also part of where i I oftentimes find myself um, skeptical of of some of these the measures to specifically create competition in these spaces because at some point in the future you're gonna have to live with those decisions that you've made. I know there are some cities that that specifically had dual providers of cable, and those cities now typically have two sorts of cable providers. That those decisions it seems are very long lasting within a city. So. The question is, is where do you, where do you go from here, and and what how do you create an innovative space going forward? But I do know that one area that seems to be an an interesting potential competitive check is at least with wireless. And I know this is something that that you and I have discussed in the past. For me, I think why it's interesting is that you know whenever you have kind of robust competition on the wireless space as well, whenever consumers choose that wireless service, they tend to also demand more or tend to put, you know, there seems to be some sort of competitive pressure that's put on the traditional fixed services. And so they also tend to either increase their quality or decrease their their prices for whatever that bundle is. So to me, I think that's going to be an interesting thing going forward, especially considering kind of where we've gone over the last 20 years with this. I think in the immediate future, it'll be very interesting to see what happens with the kind of the fixed wireless space. And again, I know that there's there's a whole bunch of kind of different sorts of competitive issues there, but there seems to be something happening there that whether or not they're completely substitutable in service, there is something with the fact that consumers want both. They want both a you know a high quality wireless service and a high quality fixed service, and that the effect of that is rather that there's pressure that's put also on the fixed providers. Mm-hmm. Um, we are seeing. I think new hope 
in uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. in MDUs, yeah. um, where where fixed wireless is coming in using um, the wired service within the building to distribute, and that's exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, in talking with those fixed wireless providers, we generally find that they do not see an approach to do that in single family homes. So, you know, in some ways, depending on which market you're talking about, it has different impacts. Yep. I continue to find that mobile wireless is not a substitute in any way for mm-hmm. high quality fixed access. One of the things that I wanted to pull out from your, your discussion about past franchising that I think is, is underappreciated is that the reason the vast majority of Americans have access to broadband, as defined by the Federal Communications Commission as 25 megabits by 3 megabits, which we're going to discuss in a, in a minute um, yeah. in terms of the, that standard, is because cable passes like 92% of Americans. Yeah. The reason that 92% of Americans are passed by it is because franchises granted cable companies certain rights to use the public rights of way in return for a requirement to, to build out to everyone. Mm-hmm. I don't believe cable companies would have made the, those significant investments in the lower income communities or in, in density, in areas with lower density, absent those requirements. And so I don't want that to be lost in terms of when we talk about some of the perhaps negative repercussions of franchising historically, it accomplished something remarkable um, in terms of 92% of Americans having cable services. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. And I I guess the point that I would, that I would ultimately make with this is that there's obviously trade-offs and there's always trade-offs to the situation. Uh, one of the things that I try to do and try to understand is, well, what are those trade-offs at the end of the day? And as you had mentioned, mentioned very specifically, yeah, I mean, that was that seems to have been and continues to be the trade-off that's made. You know, this is something that, that Google Fiber has been criticized pretty resoundedly for in the last couple of years. There's a, there's a lot to unpack there. The other part of it that I guess kind of, I wouldn't say worries me, but that really is kind of the opaque box, which is the the, the conversation that goes on and how these are, you know, in the kind of tit-for-tat that goes on with the, within the city. So that also, to me, is an interesting part of this as well, that you have this kind of back and forth between the city and the provider. It's like, well, you know, you're the, you know, you're the provider. You've been the provider for however many years. You've been, you know, the provider for 30 or 40 years. We've signed these contracts with you. Now you come back to the table. And that also adds a very interesting tinge to the conversation back and forth. And to a certain extent, this is what Google is hoping to break up a little bit. Who knows if that's effective? Who knows if that trade-off really is effective at providing a lower cost service to individuals. Right. And I and I salute you for discussing the trade-offs because I try to do that as well. And, yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, and I recognize, you know, and I've, I've gone back and forth with people at Google about this because they are anti-franchising and I would like to see everyone have access. And I also recognize that if you try to require a company like Google to require everyone to have access they're going to go somewhere else. And then you will end up with nobody necessarily having you know better access. So um, this is definitely something, and that's one of the reasons that I like pushing authority down so that communities can make those decisions on their own um, to some extent, how they want to weigh the different trade-offs. Yeah, yeah, very much so. So let's talk about the, um, the 25-3 because you've, you've rightly noted that when I'm often criticizing the lack of competition, it's based on this assessment of 25-3 as, uh, as the, the threshold standard. level, yeah. So a couple of years back, the FCC actually decided to to raise the level of broadband to 25-3 from a level, I believe it was 4-1 previous. So I don't I didn't have any criticism of the FCC raising to, a, you know, to a new level. Broadband service continu- continues to expand. Clearly, the threshold levels and the determination of what, at, you know, what a broadband service should look like should expand over t- as time goes on. My The one criticism that I've had with this and my one worry that I've had with this is that 
when you get to a 25 megabyte level, that there is this other sort of technology that effectively is is wiped from the map and it just doesn't exist anymore. And in fact, you saw this, you know, one of my criticisms of the the past FCC administration was very much aligned with this, which is that the past administration really said there are two options. Either you have fiber to the home or you've got a cable service. And, and that is it. Additionally, fixed wireless. I mean, um, you can get significant 25, uh, 50 megabit, even True. in some cases, 100 megabit fixed wireless now. But if I if I remember correctly, a lot of the a lot of the original CAF funding models didn't actually include fixed wireless. So they only included effectively these two options. And I guess my point is, is that, you know, United States is unique in its in its historical development in that we do have a lot, as you noted, we have a, a whole bunch of homes that are passed by cable franchise of some sort. That's interesting and really is it's unique to compare to, for example, Europe, which has a far higher amount of DSL related technologies. And so that in the United States, DSL even though it is potentially it potentially has growth and and there's very specific features to American style telephone service that make it different than European, which I will freely admit. But that is often discounted. And that's this DSL based or telephone based technology is constantly discounted. Why I think that's worrying is that especially in the last round of DSL and now we're getting to a new you know set of standards in DSL. So, but the VDSL was at a twenty. The limit was twenty four point five megabytes. Well, there's VDSL two point which is up to forty, and then there are. But the original numbers. VDSL was only its potential maximum was quite literally half of a megabyte shy of the 25 megabyte threshold, which to me seems a little odd that in fact, this technology, which you could have a potential upgrade path, if you had the right kind of incentives to develop out and and there's clearly individuals wanting to switch that there's a potential upgrade path there. But that isn't included if your threshold for broadband is 25 megabytes, and the standard effectively maxes out at 24.5 megabytes, then you're not included within any of these models. And therefore, a huge amount of people who specifically in rural communities who actually do have service level at, you know, the 20 to 25 megabyte region, that drops dramatically once you hit 25. Hopefully in the end of the year, I'll be putting out a paper on this. And and very early, what I've found is that effectively, when you look at rural regions, that the changeover, at least in the last most recent updated uh, FCC data, is that the ability to get onto the internet when you look at this 20 to 25 megabyte region effectively you know, almost adds 20% of the population. So there's there's a very significant, there's there's something that's going on here. And that's what I'm interested in is looking at an actual competition that exists in the market, not just necessarily, this is what we think exists in the market. And here's the thresholds and this, the data has to be interpreted, not just, you know, it doesn't exist without any sort of um, interpretation or reading by us. And that's what I'm really interested in getting at. It's interesting. I feel like my position would not be significantly different if the standard was 23 23 by 5, for instance. Mm -hmm. And so it would include that. I mean, I think the biggest challenge with this, and and I think we're we're running the risk of, I would say, nitpicking, because given the nature of DSL, when you have a theoretical maximum, almost nobody achieves that. um, Of course. Because you have the, the distance limitations. And so in some ways, I might say that it would be appropriate to not be including those in terms of a of a future definition. I mean, we kind of run through this odd thing in which some people consider 25.3 to be the sort of the threshold of high speed. Mm-hmm. The actual term yeah. is more like minimum 
broadband. Yeah. Um, you know, it's basic broadband, I think, is, is technically the term. And so, I mean, one thing that frustrates me, and I'm curious how you react, is that we see the federal government putting so much money into programs that are expanding DSL, which means that you're giving a household right now, or you're giving AT&T $2,500, $2,200 to upgrade them to DSL. And in five years, we're going to be giving them X dollars more because DSL is already obsolete. AT&T's CEO has said this. I think anyone who actually looks at it recognizes that to the extent that there is there are future upgrades, it's not going to happen in these rural markets in particular that have longer runs. All of the things when you talk about like GFAST, which is what CenturyLink will often talk about, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's like inside a building. It's not, yeah. it's not across town. So in many ways, I've, I'm frustrated and I feel like it is a wasted investment to even be thinking about DSL when we need to be figuring out how to get people on a path where they'll be having the, the faster speeds that are necessary down the road. Again, this is a very difficult problem. I'm not going to say that there's any easy solutions here. You know, I can understand the uh, the uh, what you would say is the other side on this, which is that these technologies themselves are just absolutely effectively stranded. That there's no reason why we should be supporting them anyway. You know, the GFAST stuff, which is what CenturyLink has been pushing, they're actually recently in the UK, and this is very specific to the UK. And obviously, they have, as you said, they have shorter runs. So the actual, you know, the actual loop is much much shorter in in Europe as compared to the United States, which which makes obviously the speeds at the at the end consumer level much much faster. If only we were destroyed in World War II, we could have <laughs> rebuilt also. Yeah, no, that and that's exactly the reason why is because uh, I don't want to say they wired it completely um, greenfield after World War II, but a very significant portion of Europe did effectively do that. So the very first GFAST, I think the very first GFAST network is actually going into the UK right now, which still you're talking about practically speaking, even though the theoretical maximum is one gig, you are still seeing for them, they're, they're projecting about 150 megabyte per second, which is really, really, really fast, at least in, you know, within that region. I, I'm hesitant necessarily to to count out that technology. You do see a lot of regions that are still very connected with it, and and there's a difference between and you know obviously there's a lot happening with both AT and T and Verizon because you know Verizon has been effectively been exiting this the the fixed broadband market. That Verizon and AT and T each have their own different paths. You have Verizon has been getting rid of or you've been selling off a lot of their DSL assets and has been giving it you know has been going the the route of Frontier and been selling it to Frontier. So there is clearly a lot still happening within within these markets, which I think need to be looked at a little bit more. I do wonder specifically about this, uh, about the AT&T president, in which he specifically said that he thinks that DSL is a in technology. I guess I guess I'm maybe I'm a little more optimistic than he is of his own base technology, but I still think that there's probably something you can that you can do with this. And there's still you still effectively have a whole bunch of wires in the ground. You still have a lot of assets that that are out there. And if you you're can, tr- you can recycle the copper. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> but you can also it's you also have put there's clearly technology that, for example, the the way that DSL works, you have to get um, you have to get relatively fast speeds to the office to even serve it. So there there's clearly development development of the network that exists within there within there. And I think that enterprising people and and indeed maybe other companies could you know repurpose that i mean and and again it's a tough business this is not an easy business to get into yeah no i I definitely agree i want to come to the the final point though which is one of preemption um i recently in a newspaper all you and i are both quoted and yeah and i praised you um afterward because um uh, we went through this issue several years ago of of the institute for local self-reliance was on the position of encouraging the fcc to preempt states that had preempted local communities. Yep. Our rationale is we're an organization that's against preemption. And oddly enough, the FCC preemption would have removed preemption. So we found yeah, ourselves yeah. in ordinarily, we're not supporting any kind of preemption. Um, 
You were against preemption then. Now we find ourselves with Verizon and Comcast saying, yes, we want the FCC to preempt local laws and states even um, on a variety of issues regarding regulating privacy and net neutrality and 5G and things like that, um, small cell deployments. Um, You had the same position, which was to point out that preemption was not very wise. I wouldn't necessarily, it's not very wise. It's not within the FCC's gambit. I mean, you look at their legal authority and it, it stops at preemption. There isn't, they don't have the preemptive rules, at least in the way that it was interpreted under the municipal preemption order. And I don't think they really, I don't think there's a good case to be made here either. Right. I mean, to be clear, let me know if I'm mischaracterizing this. Uh, what we're looking at is a section of law, which is largely un, unexplored, um, yeah. in which the FCC basically is supposed to remove barriers to investment. And, uh, Comcast and Verizon had previously said that that was a very narrow scope or even yeah, not. Of course. A- yeah. And it was de- they said it was deregulatory, which I actually tend to agree with them on that, that it was a deregulatory when you the 706A and 706B, the, the 706B being the, the reporting and the 706A being, you know, I still need to talk to people who actually wrote that section, which because it, it seems a little it seems to be this kind of interesting addendum and afterthought. It, really? Yeah. And I, maybe there was something else there. Um, yeah, because it actually also gives a power to the state. PUCs, and no one has any idea how that would be exercised. Yeah, and there's there's a lot of really interesting legal questions here. So I'm, I'm positive about federalism. I do think that obviously the states and municipalities really should be, you know, in, in all sorts of ways be involved in this. And I do think that the power, um, at least that Congress had given the FCC, doesn't really extend to this question of, you know, preempting preempting states on on this issue of, of privacy because you know effect, effectively you know the FCC and the way that Congress had you know has has gone in the last in specifically in this last Congress is saying something to the effect of you know we're I mean privacy is kind of off the table we're not we're not going to deal right. with it and so let me let me see if I got this right because I don't know as much about this as you do but Congress uses the Congressional Review Act to to nullify FCC privacy regulations, which also says not just we're getting rid of those, but the FCC has no authority to regulate on privacy until Congress gives it new authority to do so. Exactly, yeah. If the FCC were to preempt states, then theoretically the only other entity that could regulate privacy might be the Federal Trade Commission, but they're also limited from not being able to regulate common carriers. Yep. So theoretically, no one can regulate privacy anywhere. The states still have a lot of power in this, and this is the reason why there's obviously a lot of these state state measures and state bills. The state AGs, and I do think that state AGs probably need to be getting involved in this in this space, and they have in the past. I mean, New York obviously has gone through a lot of this. You know, some of the more some of the more active AGs, and there are a number of state AGs that have taken this upon themselves and taken this as a mantle. The common carrier exemption for which effectively bars the FTC from from going after common carriers, that's still kind of an interesting question because from my understanding, it's only really been determined in the Ninth Circuit, which is out of California, and that whether or not the the interpretation within the, the Ninth Circuit really would apply writ large to the rest of the United States is a, is a really big question. Again, I'm not a lawyer, so I it's just interesting to, for me to see all these kind of jostlings occurring. Still, there's only a couple, I think only two or three of these bills actually got passed. I think Hawaii was one of them. I mean, I have concerns for the bills for other reasons. As I have been saying a number of times, I would hope much more for an opt-out system instead of an opt-in system, because that is kind of the, you know, the privacy standard that we've talked a lot about and the FTC has talked a lot about. So I have criticisms for the local bills on that angle, but whether or not the FCC can really go in and do anything, 
I don't think that they have the authority to do that. And in fact, to be very, very blunt, Congress probably needs to re-engage in this. And this is something I've been, almost all of my work, you should see something along these lines. Congress needs to re-engage with these questions because these are very tough questions that, in fact, in the 96 Act, the Congress kind of left to the FCC. And so the FCC's had to deal with these very tough both political and legal questions. And this is the reason why it is either loved or hated, depending on, you know, whatever issue you're talking about with the FCC. I would, again, like the Congress to actually kind of, again, kind of come back, think again about what privacy should look like, who should be the arbiter of this. Um, I think there's a potential for kind of like a memorandum of understanding, which is something I've also said about network neutrality. You know, you could have kind of this better relationship between the FCC and the FTC, which they've done in other spaces. The understanding being that both of these agencies would come together on very specific issues. They would have kind of a, you know, a, a working group. They would they would work with economists and they'd work with consumer groups. They would work with engineers and they would figure out what the issues are and start kind of bringing them to the to the forefront. And the FTC has done a lot of really great work on this. I would like to see the FCC kind of get reinvigorated in that. And it's, it's possible. A lot of other countries have done it, but it needs to be done in the United States. Well, thank you for coming on the show. It's really yeah, great. Thanks for having me. We we often get requests for people that have differing points of view. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I appreciate you coming into the lion's den. Yeah, of course. And um, I'm on Twitter. So if you want to tell me how I'm wrong, that's the easiest way to let me know how I'm wrong. Great. Thanks. Thank you. That was Christopher and Will Reinhardt from the American Action Forum. We have transcripts from this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadband bits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter where the handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and the other ILSR podcasts, Building Local Power and the Local Energy Rules podcast. You can access them on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Never miss out on our original research by also subscribing to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. Thank you to Arnie Husby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle license to Creative Commons. And thanks for listening to episode 281 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. <laughs> <laughs>